episode 3368 of the Survival Podcast today. And uh, I've got a subject we've kind of danced around. I don't know if we've ever talked about it as a full dedicated show before. We've definitely talked about the individual subjects today of hunting, fishing, and foraging. And we've talked about developing or managing a property for those purposes. I don't know that we've ever talked about it as an alternative to homesteading before. And I'm doing the show for a variety of reasons. One is I get older, I like work less and less, physical labor type stuff on the property. That's number one. Number two, I hear it all the time. It's so much work. It's so much work. I've seen so many people go into homesteading, get overwhelmed, and completely write it off. And I always try to point out to people that there is no absolute in life unless you choose to make it an absolute. And that The approach I take right now and the amount of homesteading stuff we do and taking care of all these animals and everything is actually pretty dramatically different from what I talk about growing up with. So we're going to talk like, what was life like um, in the 1980s in my grandparents' homestead and and how little actual homestead work there was. And it was more that we relied on natural sources of food and slowly putting things up throughout the productive time of the year. And then that way when winter came – And we weren't big on ice fishing or any of that crap. Like, everything was pretty much done for the year. We kind of took a few months off. Maybe did a little predator hunting or something like that for something to do if there was an unseasonably warm day. Poked around, did some scouting for the coming season. But overall, like, February, especially like January and February, we're like, we're done. We're done. March still was cold as shit in Pennsylvania. And, like, April, you start looking at trout fishing. And so we're going to talk about that, again, as an alternative or an adjunct to very small-scale homesteading versus a lot of the homesteading topics that I've talked about uh, over the years. Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, can tell you all about growing things. How about the Wealthsteading Podcast with John Pugliano, where you can grow your wealth the way that you grow a garden through practical, down-to-earth, solid investing across time, uh, the Well Setting Podcast is where John shares his expertise. He's developed in a lifetime of being an investor, first for himself and only after making himself a self-made millionaire through investing did he start taking clients and investing other people's money. And now he shares everything that he has going on on a daily basis, really, every week a few times in a short podcast called The Wealth Spending Podcast, which you should totally check out. And remember, John is also one of us. He's a prepper. He is a homesteader, ham radio operator, et cetera. Uh, so he really gets this community and this audience, and he comes at investing from that same viewpoint. Next up today, you know, when it comes to investing, I think it makes sense to have at least some of your money in silver and or gold. And I have said the same thing for 15 years now. I have also had the same recommendation. It has never changed. Even after I found Bitcoin and said this should be a big part of your investment portfolio, I've always maintained somewhere in the neighborhood of 5% of your net wealth should be invested in silver and or gold and up to 10% if you want to take a more aggressive approach. I'm personally more in that 5% range, but I'm okay in that 5 to 10% range. So why get your silver and gold from JM Bullion? Well, free shipping on all orders over 200 bucks. Supported the show that you love for over a decade now. 
discount for members of my member support brigade and personal relationship that I have with the president of the company. If there's ever a problem, I can always get a hold of Michael over there to help out with a customer service issue or something like that, though it almost never happens. So the real question is, why would if you're a listener of the Survival Podcast, why would you buy your silver or gold from anybody but JM Bullion? All right, let's get into this topic before we do just a real quick announcement. I did put out the official announcement for the Survival Podcast uh, workshop, TSP 23, at my at my site. We do this every year in November. This year it's November 1 through 5, so it's a week earlier than is typical. We did that to accommodate a staff member. Um, th- there was some confusion because the dates changed as far as the date the tickets go on sale. Uh, the date the ticket goes on sale is now not this Saturday. It's next Saturday. I think it's the 16th or the 18th. Uh, I have it here on the thing somewhere, uh, just so I get it right. It will be Saturday, September the 16th at 9.30 CST. And apparently this caused some confusion because I had suggested it would be this coming Saturday. I did, and I heard from people, and they're not sure if they can come. Do they have enough money? Like, just some stuff. And then me getting ready, I decided, like, just give it one more week. That still gives people plenty of lead time to get plane tickets and stuff like that once to secure their tickets. Uh, so it will be next Saturday, especially coming off a short week this week. But there's another really cool thing going on this this time around. As you guys know, many of you anyway, I originally interviewed Jim Shockey. And uh, Jim has a new book out called Call Me Hunter. It's actually not even out yet. It gets released in October. I have set up a deal with Jim's agent at Simon & Schuster. Every single paying student will get a copy of the book signed by Jim and numbered TSP-23 number one or two or whatever of X, with X being the total number. Again, every paying student is going to get a copy of the book. There will probably be a way that you can order uh, extra copies as well. And uh, as like some if staff or whatever wants to order a copy or two, we'll have a way to do that. That'll come after I sell the tickets though. Uh, and have final numbers and all into uh, the agent over there. But this is an autographed and noting the event, so there'll be no other way to get it. And Jim's just a legend in his world. I'm sure not every student coming, this is a huge deal too, but most of you guys. Uh, and if you're not a person that, like, you know, really cares about that space, the outdoor space, I bet you someone in your life does and will be coming up like Christmas. What a hell of a gift to give somebody. Uh, this is going to be awesome. Anyway. Let's go ahead and get into today's topic. So let's talk about homesteading from a standpoint of devil's advocate, right? Like, let's talk about the stuff that honestly is not the greatest in the world when you're heavily into homesteading. And you guys know I love this subject and I love a lot of the stuff that I do, but I can be honest and say, you know, like, the number one thing is the workload. I've set things up where it's not a tremendous amount of work. But I do have to get up and do things every day. There's there's no taking the day off. There's always something that needs doing. And so you get like a long weekend like this, and you're like, man, you know what? It'd be great to just lay in the bed till 830. Well, that's not going to work for me. I've got to get up. i got to let the birds out. i got to make sure that they have water for the day, that they're fed, that the stuff gets watered. Things are just – and then, like, all my aquatic systems and all, just, just go look at it and make sure nothing broke overnight. Like, any given day, this is 15 minutes of work. But, you know, you got to do it every day. 
The other thing is things die, and they die a variety of ways. Things die because they drown themselves in buckets. Things die because predators kill them. Things die because they do something really stupid and kill themselves. Things die because they get sick. And that's not just animals that die. That's where you kind of start out there, but it's also like plants die, trees die. I, I have lost thousands of dollars worth of trees over the years of trying to make this homestead work because it's such a rugged, rough environment. And the last two years flatly have beat my ass. I was talking to my wife about this over the weekend, and I said, it comes down to it. Like, I bit off a huge challenge with this place, and not in every way, but in many ways, this place beat me. Almost everything that I did would have worked in a big way if there was four feet of soil here instead of six to ten inches, and in some places, too. And when you get into a place like this, and then you get two years in a row of massive drought and excessive heat, you lose a lot of things. But that's me. I've talked to tons of people that have lost animals, plants, all types of things. Uh, one of my really good friends in, in the community uh, won't be coming to the workshop this year because um, he's trying to put his life back together after the hurricane that just hit in Florida, and it wiped out his food forest, basically. Um, so when we are putting a tremendous amount of effort into building things, we can lose things, and it can be frustrating. Then this all leads to the biggest headache, and this is like our biggest single headache. And fortunately, we have somebody that's really great about house sitting for us, but you get tied to the land. So when we take our big, big vacations, we just we pay somebody. He takes care of the place. It's a guy that's been here so often. He knows everything. If something goes wrong, he knows how to fix it. Uh, if we have a power outage, he knows how the generators work and what to put priority on. And that's great. But. You know, what about when would like my wife's like, hey, we should just go to Fredericksburg for two days. You see what I'm saying? Like there is a certain amount when you start, in, especially animals, when you start involving animals, you end up tied to the land. If it's dogs, you can put in some outdoor kennels. You can get somebody to come by and just feed them and make sure they don't die. But when you start having birds or like some of you guys have like pigs or sheep or things like that, you're you're kind of committed. Or you have to find the person that can do all of that. you got to find the guy that can be a sheep shepherd and a pig caretaker and a dog caretaker and knows how to make sure if this, you know, like life-supporting system goes down, how to fix it, the power goes off and anything's power-dependent, what to do about it. So you get tied to the land. And then even if you're profitable, and I don't mean profitable as in you're selling product for money, that could be too, but like... You, the food you're producing costs you less than buying it. To me, that's profitable. You still have these points in the middle or if something goes wrong where you have feed costs uh, or you have to go get your feed or you have feed needs. So I do a lot here that feeds my animals for free, but I still have to do it. Right? I grow a lot of aquatic plants. That cuts my duck food bill and my goose food bill dramatically, but I have to do it. Nobody's here going to do, come do it for me, right? So there are downsides to homesteading, and this is where people even gardening, like if it's a big garden with weeding and maintaining it and everything, like pe people just say, I don't want to do it, and, and I understand. And that's why I wanted to bring a show to you today that was more about how do we take a piece of land and make it a homestead without all the homestead activities going on. So let's go back. Let's rewind all the way back to like the mid-1980s. Jack Spirico is 14 years old. He's 
with his grandfather on his grandfather's one and a half acre property. What does that look like? Well, if we go back that far, that's when they still had a little chicken coop with a double run system and a big old goose that protected them. But I'm going to tell you, as my grandparents got older and realized we don't really need these things anymore, it was only like a season or two. I think it was two seasons, and the birds went away. They gave the goose to the neighbor who had a chicken coop. I think my grandmother stewed all the chickens. That, that's just like we're just stewing the chickens and we're done. So then that little coop just got kind of teared down and repurposed, and it was gone. And all that was there, all that was there were some, you know, walnut and apple trees that no one did anything to take care of. A garden that was a pretty big garden. I, I will I will say that. It was a pretty big garden. But in that climate, I think I watered it, like, in the middle of summer when we would get a drought, which is, well, like, 14 days without raining, they started calling it a drought up there. Maybe two or three times a summer, I would drag a hose down there and water it for my grandfather. Weeding, but the way we did things, there wasn't a lot of weeding. And it was pretty much plant and then harvest. And my grandmother would can everything. So there was that, and that was the homesteading component. Again, there was a lot of, like, trees and bushes and stuff that things grew on that we could harvest. We had one little patch where the uh, horseradish grew. But it wasn't really cold. It was like we would go down and dig it up in the fall, and my grandmother would just give me the tops and say, stick them back in the ground. It was, you know, a few minutes work a year and and things like that. The rest was all kind of driven by hunting, fishing, and foraging. And so a typical year was to start in the spring. Yeah, we'd put the garden in for the year. And then we really didn't do anything except, okay, there's broccoli to be cut today. Go cut the broccoli. Like that was it. But what was really heavy in spring was foraging, which was nice because you didn't have to do anything. You just had to know where the stuff was. And we would have these big gatherings. We would get a, a huge number of people together and go pick blueberries was one of our big ones. And one of the people, one of the adults, I don't remember who it was actually, somehow had acquired, acquired in air quotes, a whole bunch of cafeteria uh, trays. Like when you're in school and you get your lunch and it's, it's, it's one flat tray. They had like a half a dozen of those. And we would just pick our asses off of blueberries. We'd bring our buckets back and dump them in these trays. And then others would just kind of sort through them and pick out the green and red berries that weren't fully ripe. We would end up with a certain amount at the end, and it would just get divided up. Um, that was the big group picking because of the way blueberries worked and had short season. I picked the heck out of blackberries and blueberries on my own up on a place called Pine Hill Mountain. Um, we picked wild strawberries. We would um, forage in left later in the year, so we'll leave it go for now. But that was pretty much the big ones, blackberry, blueberry, and strawberries in the spring. A little bit of mushroom action, not very much. As we headed into spring, later spring and summer, this is when fishing was a big deal. And there was, you know, where I grew up, there was just tons of places to fish. There were the streams that were the trout streams that were stocked. And that was, you know, we did take a lot of fish home for that. Pretty much, especially like opening days, stocking days, you'd limit out if you know what you're doing. But it was bass and catfish and things like that, that were, and panfish that were everywhere. There was a little pond uh, in a place called Llewellyn, and I used to go ride my bike back there and uh, put minnow traps in, and we'd catch tons of little bluegills. And, you know, we on a weekend then, we would get on dirt bikes and all, and we would head up into the the water dam where you weren't supposed to fish. 
So that was that was not a bicycle thing. That was getting on a Kawasaki or something and heading out there. And we knew if we went out there on a weekend, we'd never see anybody. And we used to catch in the spring tons of yellow perch. And I mean not big for yellow perch, yellow perch, on these little bluegills under a bobber. We'd catch catfish all year long, channels and bullheads both. Some of the creeks we knew had big bluegills in them, I mean, like hand-plus-size bluegills. So we would all summer long be catching and eating fish, but catching way more than we needed and, you know, filleting them and, and, and freezing them so that we had them in the fall, in the winter, until we got to the next spring. So there was just really that's where all the focus went in the summer was fish. And, again, it was everything. It was trout, catfish, bass, you name it. And then we get into fall, and that was hunting season. So that was kind of like you might do a little fishing here and there on a nice day, but pretty much you hit September, dove season. In the dove field every day, a dozen doves, a gun, every day that you could get out, clean them up, put them in the freezer. So you had September was dove. When you got to October, you got in a small game in archery for deer season. And, I mean, we hit it, and we hit it hard. And I, I've said this before, but if there was somebody in the family who was old enough to get a hunting license but didn't hunt, they got a hunting license, and magically the first deer of the year that was killed had their tag on it. Because back then we got one tag per hunter, one deer per person per year. So, I mean, in our family, we would put seven to ten deer a year into the deep freezers, plus squirrels and rabbits and grouse and pheasants, Right. Uh, just in a shit ton of dove. Plus, I was I was a trapper through my high school years for money, and a lot of the animals that most people just trap and skin and toss, we would take the meat from. Specific, and I know some people are going to be like, "Ew, whatever." Okay, we didn't. You don't throw away good meat. Raccoons. There was never a time I trapped a raccoon that we didn't eat it. I would say probably half of the muskrats I trapped, we we would eat, and a few other things. But like certain things, you just don't like. When you get a fox, that was a money thing like fox i don't know who eats fox but it's not me um, but i'm just pointing out that like all through that fall to early winter that was meat gathering that was furry thing and feathered thing meat gathering right and then we would also in the fall forage mushrooms and there were times that we would be out hunting and all of a sudden you realize like there's 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 ram's head mushrooms here and there's a lot of them and so next thing you know, we're, we're walking around cutting mushrooms instead of hunting. If a deer, you know, keep the bow. If a deer comes, we'll shoot it. But like the one time my uncle and I filled up half a pickup truck full of ram's heads. Those are also known as matakis. Many of you guys know how expensive those are. Back, they're talking the 80s. And back then you could walk into a bar. There's little bars on every corner of this part of Pennsylvania. And you could walk in with, into a bar with a scale and a few of these big-ass mushrooms, and people would pay $10 a pound in the 80s for these mushrooms. So whatever we couldn't use, we would sell. And we also, uh, morals, uh, occasionally chanterelles. Very occasionally we would find those. Uh, but uh, puffballs, sponges, uh, there were just a, a whole plethora of mushrooms, but the gold standard was matakis. And we would put up a tremendous number of those every year. Uh, we'd also find things like uh, chicken in the wood mushrooms, which are the orange and yellow ones that grow on softwoods and stuff like that. So there was a, a whole other crop there. And then winter, winter was for projects. Winter was for reading. Winter was through for making plans for the spring and, and what have you. 
winter, we didn't do much. Like I said, occasionally there's a nice day. You might go out and scout around a little bit. We were never big on the ice fishing thing. Like, I still have fish in the freezer. I'm not going out and freezing my ass off ice fishing. Just not doing it. Plus, where I lived, it would get really cold, but it would often get little warm snaps in between the cold. So there wasn't a really reliable ice fishing uh, hobby or, or, or a subset of people. Like, I know some people, like, from upper Michigan and places like that, upstate New York, like, there's a whole community around ice fishing. There's people like every, that's like their thing. We just didn't have that. We would get ice that was fishable, but it didn't really last through the whole season. It would come and go, so it just never developed. It was more for planning and getting ready for the next season. And I would say with that, we bought very little meat. We bought very little meat through the season. And what we did buy, we mostly bought from a guy called The Butcher, but he wasn't at the grocery store. It was a dude named Artsy that would drive around in a truck and he sold stuff straight to you out of this truck. And so like the things that we would buy would be ham because we didn't produce pork and we didn't really know anybody that was producing pork and curing it. So we would buy hams from artsy. My grandmother and him had this weird shit they did all the time when there was a ham involved. She'd say, I want a ham and he'd say, what half do you want? And she would say the better half. And then they would joke. And, of course, he would give her the upper versus the lower half of the ham. So it was stuff like that. We probably, from hunting and fishing, produced 70 to 80% of our protein. And it's the most expensive stuff there is. And then today, it's pretty much the bulk of what I eat. So sometimes I look at this and think, why do I live in Texas where it's 100,000 million degrees? You know, if I could get a DSL connection on the moon, I could run my business from the moon so I could live anywhere I want. And, you know, 20 acres, that's 19 of it's wooded and a few deer feeders. I ain't go back to doing that. And sometimes that seems very appealing in a place where it rains. And so let's kind of talk a little bit about how this might blend and what you would be looking for if you were not choosing to do this, but actually changing your life to do this. If you were selecting a property, one thing would be the climate in the ecosystem have to be right for this. And here's what I mean. And, and the, the climate in the ecosystem is beyond just the natural ecosystem. The human ecosystem matters too. So a lot of what I did as a kid is less doable where I grew up, but still doable. There's still a lot of land that's public hunting land. There's still a lot of land that's privately owned, but nobody knows who owns it and nobody cares. A lot of the places I hunted are gone now. Somebody bought it. Somebody developed it. Somebody figured out who owned it and they posted it or whatever. But you can still do it. Here in Texas, if you don't have a deer lease or are paying to hunt on a property with a guide or own your own land, it is very difficult to hunt at the level that I did as a kid. There is some public game lands. They're really overstressed and overused. Um, so that human ecosystem factors in. Climate is a big deal to me. I mean, to me, it makes a lot of sense to look further north of where I'm at, more temperate climates, more rain-centric climates and things like that. But I can tell you there are places just as hot, if not hotter than here, maybe a different kind of heat, if you want to get in that discussion, where I could get fat without leaving a property, like Louisiana in the swamps. 
as long as you're comfortable eating like frogs, gators, crawfish, catfish, etc., you put me in anything approaching a jungle and and I don't have to struggle for food. So but I think you need to like figure out what works in where you're at and what you have access to to a large degree and take a really strong look at climate in this situation. If you do that, especially if you buy a chunk of land or own a chunk of land and you end up with like say 10 to 20 acres of woods, that and a couple deer feeders can pretty much keep your freezer full. And, and I know there's some people that have a real ethical dilemma with deer feeders and what have you. Well, get over it. Get over it if you want to guarantee yourself meat in the freezer versus a hunt in the wilderness. And I'll also say that like that has a lot to do with legality here in Texas, everybody hunts over feeders. It's just how it's done. And it doesn't always work either, by the way. Pennsylvania, you, you go to jail for hunting over a feeder. However, if you own 20 acres that's posted in private, then maybe there's a deer feeder, maybe there isn't if you catch my drafts. So there's a lot that can be done even with 10 to 20 acres of, on game, especially if we start looking at things like well, small game management and stuff like that, which I'll say for a little bit later, but also a lot of forage. Where I lived as a kid, there was a high school up on the hill called Minersville Area High School, and there was this kind of little buffer of land between my grandparents' property and high school. It's all woods, and and I collected so and, and so many mushrooms in that little plot. Well, that'd be a couple, three acres of woods. And it just was to the point where I knew where they would be and when they would be there. So I'd leave with a little bucket. I'd come back with, you know, a bucket full of, uh, you know, sponges or something like that or puffballs. A lot of people think puffballs are just for stepping on and making a cloud. But when you harvest them at the right age, they're a delicious mushroom. So that 10 to 20 acres can do a lot for you. And that's, you know, within a reasonable goal for many people to have a piece of land in that size range, especially wooded. Many times wooded land is less expensive than cleared land because everybody wants to have a ranch and a pasture and a giant lawn to mow or whatever. A lot of off-grid properties are mostly wooded. And so understanding the ecosystem you're in and what forage opportunity that presents from a caloric yield standpoint, because if you're going to do this, you really want to focus on the higher caloric yield or nutritional value or monetary value. So mushrooms don't have a huge caloric yield, but they do have a very high monetary value, a high nutrition, and a high quality of life. Because, you know, a deer roast with, you know, woods ear mushrooms, pretty freaking spectacular. Uh, next, water is life, and it's always life. And so if to this piece of property that you own, if you can add a pond or a lake or what have you in the half acre or larger size, especially with some real depth to it, you have a tremendous asset. And it's not just a stock tank that cattle or sheep or anything can drink out of because we're kind of past that today. We're talking about doing things a little bit differently. You do that and you probably end up with a significant amount of wild waterfowl using it, especially in today's day, of, day and age. I remember when I was a kid, for instance, you know, I talked about having a, a stamp for deer. 
We had a goose stamp in Pennsylvania. That's how much, like now people take a walk in the park in Pennsylvania and get attacked by Canadian geese. Back then, the goose population had been knocked back to the point you got, I think it was two. You got two goose stamps with your license back then. And I think now it's several a day. Texas, it's six a day throughout the whole season. Um, so there's a lot of waterfowl now, thanks to the work done largely by people like the Ducks Unlimited organization and stuff like that and good conservation measures. So you probably have either wood duck or mallard or something coming into that. But fish is the real yield there. And fish with an automated feeder, especially stocking with channel cats, you have more fish than you know what to do with on, on something that size. Or if you have a creek or a river that, you know, is on the on the property, either on the property line itself or through the property. Rivers kind of, it's a self, a self-regulating system. Creeks, a lot of times, we had a lot of creeks that we used to fish, and we did really well in them. And they weren't even creeks that we really had, let's say, a right to do what I'm about to say. We would just do it, and it would create these little pockets of hot spot water. Uh, we would just do things like build rear, weirs out of rock. So we just take rock that's already in the creek and we would just stack it and it would further back up holes and make them deeper. And then especially in the hotter part of the year when the water level would be down a bit, those would turn into super hot spots, trout, smallmouth bass and things like that. If you are far enough south, you might even look at something like farming crayfish. I watched a video of a dude that runs a two acre crayfish farm near Houston and basically, he gets in a boat every day, and he goes through his traps, and he, he pulls the trap out. And the water's all, you know, a couple feet deep. So he, he's, you're, not, you're not like when you're doing crabbing or something where you're hooking a buoy or something. He just literally reaches his hand in the water, pulls the traps out, dumps all the crayfish out of the trap into a box. And the box has uh, a slats in the bottom. And the slats determine if the crayfish is big enough to keep or not. And all the crayfish that aren't big enough to keep fall through the bottom of the box. And the ones that stay in the box get harvested. Puts a little bit of bait back in the trap. Well, if you were doing that and you weren't doing it commercially, how many crayfish are you going to eat? How often do you need to do that? Doesn't that system take care of itself? So there's lots of things you can do that are like semi-aquatic farming. There was a pond that I used to fish when I was a kid. It was about two acres. It was fairly deep. Tons of people fished it. There was a lot of catch and release that went on. A lot of the adults that fished it would like go out and fish the river. And if they had a few catfish or bass or whatever that they really didn't want to keep, but they were nice fish, they would, they would, you know, self stock and what have you. But there was just a ton of fish and with tons of pressure with, you know, everybody locally knew you could go there and fish and the place never got fished out. So if you had that one to two acre lake, you're not going to fish it out yourself. So, to me, this is something that if I was looking for a piece of land to do this, I'd put an extreme priority on surface water of some kind. And if I could have my druthers, I would have either a deep creek or river, either on the property line or through the property. And in some ways, I'd prefer the property line to going through the property if it's large enough to put a boat on. If it ain't big enough to put a boat on, I don't really care. Uh, you might have a fisherman wander through there, and you have to allow that, but you're not going to have people all the time through there. With something like a river that boats can go on, you have people through your property all the time. It kind of just seems a little less intrusive to have that on a border. And those of you like, I'll tell people they can't come. You can't do that. That's not how it works in America. If you have a river flowing through the middle of your property in America, people can come through there. You can't do anything about it. Now, they can't come up onto your property 
Doesn't mean they won't, but legally they can't. But they have every right to float down right to the center of where it's halfway in and halfway out of your property, throw an anchor over, turn some music on, and sit there all day long. And there's nothing you can legally do about it. So just know that when you're looking at surface water on your property. Um, another thing I think is if you have good, usable, public, recreational, state game, et cetera, lands near your property within, you know, a 15, 20 minute drive. And whenever I talk about this, I do always get some of the asshole purists in my audience. You know, they're going to say, you're supposed to be an anarchist. Why are you using benefiting from taxpayer funds? Listen, you take my money, then I use whatever part that I actually think is halfway decent of what you do with my money. So I don't even have that conversation anymore. I used to explain it. That's as much as I'll say on it there. But I think if you have good public access land, then that's a huge bonus because so much of what we did, we didn't do on our own property when I was a kid. We went somewhere else to do it. Uh, so then, you know, understanding what's available in your area. Here's an example. I mentioned waterfowl hunting. Hunting in Texas without owning your own land, having a deer lease, et cetera, is not great. It, it's considered, Texas is considered one of the premier deer and exotic game hunting states in the country. In fact, it may be the best if you have money. If you have money. If you just want to go out and hunt, it's one of the places with the least amount of opportunity, except waterfowl. We have so many reservoirs because of our water situation, and most of them are open to public hunting, and we have some of the best duck and goose hunting in the country, and it is incredibly accessible, and it is also highly underutilized, highly underutilized. In fact, we have guides in Texas for waterfowl that don't have leases or whatever. They use the same land that you are welcome to go hunt. There's not as many of them as, as, as you know, you'd like, I guess you'd say, because the downside of that is you have no right to tell somebody else, hey, this is my decoy set or what have you. So guides have started to move more and more toward leasing land and things like that for waterfowl. But even 15 years ago, there were there was as many people guiding goose hunts on public land and in the same areas as we had like fishing guides on public lands. So that's the other thing. To look at. Like, is there publicly accessible fishing? A lot of places that aren't great for publicly accessible hunting are wonderful for publicly accessible fishing. That's something where I live has in space. I can tell you 20 places within 15 minutes of my house that are little tiny pockets that there's plenty of fish in that you hardly ever see anybody fish and nobody even knows about. And most of them I was able to find by using things like Google Earth and then taking a ride to a place and then figuring out where you can park without getting your car hit and then coming down off the road and going, oh, wow, look at this creek. Wow, this is actually a really great creek. This is a big, deep hole under this bridge. Holy crap, I wonder what's under here. Turns out you know, there's channel cats under there what have you. So each place has its own pluses and minuses. That's something always to keep in mind. And again, I said I mentioned the deer feeders earlier. But deer feeders are incredibly useful, even if you're not going to directly hunt over them. You know, if you have a feeder that throws a pound of corn a day, uh, a 50-pound bag lasts 50 days, and it just starts getting the deer accustomed to, hey, this is a good place to be. It lets you get a good look at them, decide what you want to harvest and not harvest. It lets you get 
a good head count, a good population estimate of the beer, deer that are frequenting your property. And that helps you decide, like, let's say I have other places to hunt and I'm going to harvest. Deer. How much do I want to harvest right here on my own property? Sort of being your own, like, game uh, manager and what have you. I'll also say for those of you that have gardens or food plots and things like that, and you guys tell me I, ha- I have too many deer <laughs> that come in and eat my stuff, you have a deer garden. You have a deer garden. I will not pity you for having a deer garden. I wish I had a deer garden. I would trade every bit of production that comes out of my garden if I could shoot three or four deer over it every year, and I would never bat an eye to that. So kind of moving on from there, what are the trade-offs? Because we're talking about the upside of this, and we, we started out with some of the downsides of homesteading. Well, I think it's important to acknowledge trade-offs. It's important to be real about any of this stuff. And none of it's a magic silver bullet that everything is beautiful in. So one is that hunting, fishing, and foraging are never guarantees. Never. So the whole reason humans started going, I'm going to take this seed from this plant that tasted really good, and I'm going to dig a hole and put it in there and water it and take care of it and protect it from the animals, was because it became a guarantee. I know this food will be here. And we know perfectly well it's not a guarantee, but it's a reasonable assurance that if I plant enough stuff, some portion of it will make it and I'll have it here. Or if I take this this animal, this wild goat or sheep or whatever, and I take its babies home and I teach them to not be afraid of me and I feed them out of my hand and I keep them on my property. If I need one, it's there. We lose that when we stop growing our own food and raising our own animals and say, well, I'm going to live on deer meat or I'm going to live on squirrel meat or rabbit meat or what have you. Um, much of the type of thing we're talking about today is subject to laws, regulation, seasons, access. So, you know, what I said in our winters, they were pretty much for planning and reading catalogs and sitting around reading books and maybe doing a little scouting here and there. Maybe a little bit of predator hunting on an opportune time or something like that. You a little cabin fever. Let's go out and see if we can shoot a coyote at night or something like that. Um there's a lot of it that you just aren't going to do in certain times of the year. Even if it's legal, it's not an opportune time. So around here in the early, early spring when the water temperature is still really low, unless you have a boat and you know exactly what you're doing, a lot of good fishing throughout like eight months of the year, it's just not worth doing. I mean, if you want to go, if it's a nice seasonably, you know, a little bit, uh, warmer than normal day, that water is still cold. And if you want to sit out there and just enjoy the experience, it's fine for that. But if you're looking to put food in the freezer, it's not really going to happen unless you get some sort of stupid, weird luck. Deer season is a season. There's a time you can do it and a time you can't do it. And that means you need to make accommodations, like taking off work or whatever, during that time period to be able to do it, especially if you can't do it out your own back door. Um you can, I've seen people who are like, they're just, you know, like the one whose name was, was Mick Meat. His name was, first name was Mick, and they called him Mick Meat. And the reason they called him Mick Meat is because that sounds like some kind of weird porn name or something. But this dude shot his deer the morning of the first day of deer season every year. If the dude pulled the trigger and you heard his gun go off, it was meat. That deer was down. He never missed, and he never didn't get a deer. And I remember one year, he took a lot of shit for it. Whole season, no deer. Right. So there's always exceptions, you know, 
Um, it will some ways it will limit variety. Like if you really maximize it, you're doing fish, you're doing mushrooms, you're doing berries, you're doing, you know, you're doing ducks, you're doing ducks. Now we're back to though it's work. Now if you're like me, you enjoy it and it's all recreation, but you have to have the time. And so a lot of people, it's going to be they're going to shoot a few deer a year, maybe pick some berries and pick some mushrooms. It's not a very big variety, so it can limit variety. But if it's an adjunct, because most of us aren't trying to do 100% or even 80%. Like I said, we were doing probably 80% of our meat. But, but it was almost like a job. We just loved it. We just loved it. You know, and as I get older, I'm not sure how many, how many, how long it's going to go where I'm still happy to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, go out in the cold and wait for a deer. Just, just being honest. I, I, when I was a kid, you couldn't keep me out of the woods. If nobody else was going, then I would grab my shit and I would hike out and do it myself. And if I didn't get anything, it didn't matter. I was going to try. I've been on hunts in the recent present um, where it's like a really cold morning. And I'm like, yeah, I think I'm just going to sleep in and I'll hunt the evening. Right. So there is there is some level of still it is still work. Um, it may cost money to get suitable land. But there's also ways you can make it cost less. But when you start looking at an investment, if you're trying to do this on a piece of land that you own and control, even 10 to 20 acres, which isn't optimum, has gotten really expensive. Kind of the sweet spot in land size is somewhere to me between like 50 and 100 wooded acres. If you if you can't make a living on that for yourself from a standpoint of the stuff we're talking about today, it starts feeding yourself. You have two problems, one of two possible problems. One, you're not any good at what you're doing. So you need to fix that. The other is location. Like if there just isn't the game in the area, then that's a different thing altogether. If you live somewhere where deer are common and you have 50 wooded acres, you should be able to maybe even if you have to bend a few laws to do it, if you, if you understand what I'm saying, you should eat red meat every day if that's what you want. It really just shouldn't be that hard. Um, and it requires a different type of expertise. Growing a garden where it produces significant yield requires a development of expertise over time. It really does. Being, a, being able to be like Mick meat, right. And being able to go out and always take that deer, except for that one rare exception that takes a different level of expertise. And I think one of the things that people like myself, and I always try to remain conscious of this, see, I grew up and I remember, especially coming up like in my twenties and thirties, talking to people at work and go, you never shot a gun. You don't know how to tie a fish hook on? Like, to me, it was just, well, doesn't everybody know how to do this stuff? It would Some of the things that we, we that we, I would take for granted is everybody knowing. It would be, imagine you meet somebody, and they tell you, and they're like 25 years old, 35 years old, and you say, well, let's take your car. And they go, I don't have a car. And what do you mean you don't have a car? Well, some people have cars. Well, here, drive mine. And they go, I can't. You go, well, why not? Well, I, don't, I never learned how to drive. It was that basic to me that people knew how to use a flashlight to go get worms for bait for trout season and hold the light so the light cast down and didn't scare the worms in. So it started to rain. It was near trout season. You went out and got worms. And either you, you did kind of the light cast from above or you put a uh, like a red handkerchief over it. Or if you had a military one, a little red lens, and it made the worms less likely to hide. Like I thought everybody knew how to do that. 
What do you mean you don't know between a removable and a non-removable split shot? What do you mean you don't know what a number six bait holder eagle claw is? What, what, what do you mean you don't know how to fillet a fish? What do you mean you don't know the difference between 150 and 180 grain load for a 306? What do you, what do you mean you don't know how to skin a squirrel? What do you, like, I didn't get that. So then when you start to really develop in this skill set, you don't realize how long it actually, if you've done it since you were a kid, you don't realize how long it took to develop the knowledge that you have and how long it might take to hand it down to somebody else. Here's an example. I was, you know, recently, well, recently is a spring because it's too hot in the damn summer here. We we're taking a walk in the nature center with my grandkids and they have learned to identify a deer trail. Like this is our trail. Right. Sure. Deer walk on it. But that's it. Oh, Grandpa, look, a deer run, a deer run. Right. They know what it is. So we're walking along the deer run. We're like, they're like, we're all off the trail. Yeah, we're going off the trail. Screw them. Let's go. We're going to go look and see what's going on. And then you find like the buck rub. And most people know what a buck rub, but it's where the deer, the bucks will rub a tree. And people say this is to get the velvet off their antlers. The velvet comes off their antlers. They rub long after that. This is a this is my territory. This is my place. I'm all keyed up with hormones, and I want to kick some ass, and there's nobody here, so I'm going to kick this little oak tree's ass so that every other buck knows I'm going to kick some ass, and these are my dogs, right? So I'm showing them the the rubs, and I, I'm asking them both, like, do you notice anything about them? And they really don't get it, you know? And I'm like, well, if you look, every single rub on this trail is about on the same size tree. So it's probably one, maybe two bucks, but they're about the same age because they're all hitting the same. It's all on the same thing. There's one dominant buck here. But look at the other thing. All the rubs are on the same side of the tree. They were all like, as we're walking, you could see them and you turn around and look back and there's none going the other way. So this deer, don't know what time of day he's doing this, but on this particular run, he's moving in this direction. He's not really coming back the other way much. He has a, another cycle, some other way that he's going. And then we see like a side run and we go look at it and I get down on the ground and there's a blow down tree. And I'm like, they use this a lot. And the kids are like, why? How do you know that? And you point to the blow down tree and it's got tons of little nicks in it from hooves hitting that tree as it's going across that. Now, all this is perfectly logical. It makes perfect sense when you start looking at the woods that way to see that. It's very basic patterning and tracking. But you know how many people have hunted half their lives and don't know what I just told you? Wouldn't recognize that, wouldn't see that. Understanding things like rubs and scrapes and how those are different and how patterning a buck using uh, scrapes, if you're able to hunt during the rut, it increases your opportunity to take that deer. Like there's so many things to learn about this that if I do a podcast and make it sound like just buy some woods and shoot some deer. Well, if you buy the right woods in the right place in the right time, maybe it will be because I know there are places where the deer are just stupid thick. But in general, this stuff takes time to learn and fishing. Don't even get me started. Right. Fishing is a whole different thing. I remember fishing with one of my best friends going to high school, a guy named Mikey. And Mikey just wasn't very good at casting without ending up in a tree. And he didn't understand how to read water. And I, you know, we'd be fishing in a creek and he'd get ahead of me because if you get there first, you're going to get the fish, right? And I'd catch a few fish and then I'd catch up to him. And he'd sit in a perfect spot, catch anything. No, there's nothing in this hole. 
and I drop a line six inches from where he had been hitting, but a little bit up under an overhang and then drifted along a cutout and bam, brook trout. And he'd start cussing and all. And it was just, there's something about if you spend enough time in the right mindset in these environments, you just look at a place and go, that's a fishy place. Those of you that are angry, you know what I'm talking about? You say, this place is like, you throw a cast up in there and if you don't catch a fish, you're surprised. You're like, come on, that cast deserved a fish in of itself. Right? So there's, there's something. So I, Green Country says the spiders will tell you how tall the deer are. The spiders never lie. And what he's talking about is, you know, the deer will knock those webs down and you'll see like the upper piece of the web and the bottom piece destroyed. You know, and if it's it, low enough, it's probably not people. Right. And it's higher than a deer's average head. Well, it's probably a buck with a high rack. There's the, there's little things like that. And people just don't think so. Just understand, even though I'm painting a pretty nice print picture of this today, there's a whole level of expertise to this. Right. Um, now, what about if we take this and we marry it with like homesteading light? So we take all the heavy lifting work, the taking care of a flock of birds, the composting, the big garden, the things that make you need a caretaker to take a two-day weekend to uh, a local town to just go screw off for a weekend with your wife or whatever, or your husband. And we get rid of that. And we say, what are the things that we can do that we really don't have to take care of? We don't take care of them for a week. Nothing happens. We don't care for two weeks. Nothing happens. Maybe once every three weeks, we need to look at it. And certain times of the year, we don't even need to look at it. And we only leave those things that are functional and useful. Then what do we end up with? Well, I think you end up perennial fruits and berries, et cetera, with the stun method, a reappropriated stun method. If you've never heard of the stun method, it came from Mark Shepard. Lots of people have done it. He gave it a name, stun. Sheer, total, utter neglect. Now, what Mark means is when he's planting a farm, if he's going to need a hundred trees in the end, he plants a thousand or two thousand or three thousand. And the ones that die, screw them, they die. And then if you're doing chestnuts in a climate where chestnuts are borderline, you go look, the trees that don't really grow really well, chainsaw. Next season, if you have trees that are starting to flower, even if they're not making nuts, and other trees aren't, the ones that ain't making flowers yet, chainsaw. Fourth, fifth season, ones are making nuts, ones are not making nuts, chainsaw. That's what he means. I mean it a bit differently. I mean like what we had on my property when I was a kid. We had a bunch of apple trees. Those apple trees, most of those apple trees got there because there were windfall apples everywhere. My dad and his brothers would eat apples, and they threw apples around the property. And then we used to have apple fights, apple fights. So all these apple trees, a lot of the apples that they produce are not the best apples. So you end up with all these windfall apples and some get made in a cider. Some my grandmother would trim up and make like an apple pie out of or whatever. But a lot of them, they just laid on the ground. Well, what we used to do, we'd go in the woods and we would cut about a six foot long sapling, green sapling, right? Something that would make a good little fishing, like a cane pole. You'd want it to be about as big around as a bait casting rod at the base. And the tip you'd want to be about as big around as your pinky. And we used to take those and take a knife and sharpen the tip of that stick. You take one of these apples, and these are, you know, they're like somewhere between a golf ball and a baseball. Not as big as a baseball, bigger than a golf ball. 
you cram one of these things on the end of this stick, and you hold it like a bait casting rod. And you can throw it about 70 to 100 yards, accurate and fast. We used to have fights with them. We'd get on these two stripping banks with buckets of apples and, like, bruise the shit out of each other from 70 yards away with these apples. If you have the rules not in the face like the BB gun wars when you're a kid, except you really they're accurate, but they're not accurate. You're kind of thrown in a general area of the human being. So with all that going on, there were all types of apple trees that just grew from cores and rotted fruit and whatever. That's what I'm talking about because Rick says I've done the stun method and it's expensive. Well, if you're doing it by buying trees, it's incredibly expensive. If you're doing it by picking up a whole bunch of chestnuts and sticking some in the ground and the ones that live, live, it's not. Or you're doing what I'm talking about with apples or persimmons and things like that or plums. Or you put in your little orchard, your 10 fruit, 10 various fruit trees. You put them in. You put automated irrigation in, and that's it. You prune them once a year. You pick what grows on them, what doesn't, doesn't get okay. Right? And you, you don't sweat it. And you do full-size trees, so eventually the tree gets high enough. The fruit's above the deer browse line. The deer come eat the fallen fruit. You shoot the deer. Like, that's how we start to bridge the gap to where it's homesteading, but I can still go to Fredericksburg and drink wine for a weekend without having to hire somebody, right? And that's just my particular geography there. Herb gardens, I think, are fantastic. Herb, you know, chives, oregano, rosemary, thyme, stuff like that. That's something you pick it as you use it. And a very small herb garden can provide all the kitchen herbs that you need. You've got that fresh thing. But, again, you go out of town for two weeks, it doesn't matter. Herbs are mostly weeds. Um, For those that want to take it up a little bit of a notch, but – they don't want to really do a lot of gardening and ever. I think this is where hydroponics is a fantastic thing to do. Mostly in the winter when all of the forage is in short supply and you have like fresh basil, fresh arugula, fresh lettuce and stuff. This stuff, when you buy it, is expensive. So it's not a high caloric yield, but it's something people like to eat. And it's something that's by the pound. Go price organic greens by the pound. And compare it to ground beef or steak, even. It gets, and so same with herbs, it gets to be very expensive. What I love about indoor hydro, it's completely climate controlled. You do it when you want to. And when you don't want to, you just eat everything that's left. You turn it off. You start it back up whenever you want to. So it's a great, like, winter time. Like, I'm not really doing anything, you know? So through the winter, I'm going to eat all this wonderful fresh veg until I get to my spring when it's easier to source it, even if I'm not growing it for myself. And I do think small gardens can pay big dividends. You know, a half dozen pepper plants and and two tomato plants and a couple eggplants and some beans. And then it's not really a lot of work, especially if you automate the irrigation. Now, you may be like, I just was talking about getting out of this, and now you're getting back into it, you know, and that can become addictive and it can become something that runs away from you. But if you, you know, like I've recently featured those uh, galvanized four by eight foot beds on T-Spaz, two of those, two of those as a backyard garden, ideally situated best as far as wind protection, sun protection, get enough sun, not too much sun, little automated system for irrigation. That's good, especially if you're like a two person household. That's it. It's all you need. We have to realize we don't always have to recreate small farms to, you know, homestead effectively or what have you. And then, you know, 
I talked this about this a little bit, but with the game management, everybody thinks deer, deer, deer. Small game is something that's incredibly productive, easy to deal with, and there's a lot of things we can do with it. One of the things we can do, especially if we have like a 10-acre, 20-acre wooded property, put in a whole bunch of squirrel nesting boxes, and your squirrel population will just explode. Um, squirrels, we think of them as tree rats and all, but they really don't reproduce at the level that many rodents do. Uh, a typical female squirrel will have two to three babies, and she might have two or three, if she's lucky, three, but usually two clutches a year. It's not a lot, and they need multiple nesting locations. So what a squirrel will do, squirrels in, inevitably end up with fleas. So the squirrel, girl squirrel, she'll make her nest in the trees. Usually they make the ones like the gray squirrels like to make, like it looks like a big wad of weeds of uh, leaves like mesh together if they can't find the cavity. And they'll raise their little squirrels until the point where they can be moved. And by then the fleas and shit and the poop has become a problem. And what they do is they, t they pick their squirrel, the baby squirrel up just like a dog carries a puppy or a cat carries a kitten and will carry it to the next location. And they may use to raise one clutch, three locations. So if you give them more places to brood, you'll have more squirrels. And then if you keep, an eye on your population and don't over harvest. And for those who like squirrel, I don't want any squirrel. You haven't tried it. You don't know. It's one of the most fantastic meats that nature has to offer. And it's inevitably, inevitably sustainable. You set up a few feeders for them with some black oil sunflower. It's really cheap and you can really blow the population up. And that's just one small game critter that we can do that with. One small game critter. And, and, you know, when it comes to building boxes, I don't have a link in the notes today, but if you look up squirrel nesting box tire, there is a pattern that you can cut a standard car tire, bend it and pop rivet it together, and it makes a perfect squirrel nesting box, and it will probably still exist when the tree falls down and rots. And so you can always come up with those for free, put some of those up. And like I said, if you do water features, especially ponds, rivers, lakes, a little bit of management toward waterfowl, and you're in great shape. Same thing with turkeys, like a deer feeder, inevitably in an area with turkeys will attract wild turkeys. So there are some things we can do if we own the land where we can manage the land for not just deer, but other small game. I think this is kind of one of the sweet spots, um, really one of the sweet spots for the person that doesn't want the homesteading lifestyle, but they do want the self-sufficiency is that piece of land, 10, 20, 30, 40 acres. That's almost all wooded wooded property requires almost no effort to maintain. You know, when we look at land now, when we think about would we ever leave here and we look at land and we see like 40 acres of pasture, I used to look at that and go, oh, the food forest there and this there and graze that. And now I'm like, that's all, that has to be cut, mowed, grazed, something. And I don't feel like doing it anymore. I really don't, you know, as I get older. So that is kind of, if you want that approach, I think that is a sweet spot, somewhere between 10 and 50 acres of wooded land, not too steep. Be careful of buying cliffs because they're just not that usable. Otherwise, it's really a great way to go. Remember that everything has its trade-offs. Since we are designing a lifestyle, we should design it based on our needs, wants, desires, and limitations. So if you love large acreage homesteading, then everything I said today should just be like, how can I add that to large acreage homesteading? If you like market gardens, big gardens, livestock, all of that, then that's what you should do. 
But if you don't like it, then this is another way. This is another way. Um, somebody's asking about doing an interview with me. If you mean get me on a show with you, then send me an email. Jack at the survival podcast.com with TSPC in the subject line. If you want to be on the survival podcast, then go to the survival podcast.com, click on guests and fill out the form completely, completely, not partially, completely. If you don't do it completely, I throw your guest form away and forget about you within about five minutes. Uh, it's also in that. But yeah, definitely understand that everything has trade offs. And so, you should be picking the stuff that works the best for you rather than trying to do something because Jack Spirico said to do it or some other influencer or some other YouTube channel. Like I've got like a hundred ducks and now you need a hundred ducks. Ducks are work. They're not a lot of work. Mostly they take care of themselves, but they are work. They all, all work. Um, so I don't have a lot of questions. Today. A few things came in that got started. I want to hit on them real quick. Gma Merkel says it has to be a navigable waterway, otherwise it's illegal to trespass. She's talking when I talk about creeks and rivers running through your property. Here's the thing about navigable. What does that mean? What does that? That means if at any time during the year, on a regular basis, I can put a kayak on it and go through your property, it's a navigable waterway, and it stays navigable even when it's lower, because I'm dragging my boat through. Yeah. So uh, she also says, I've got two creeks on my property. Neither one is navigable, but flow all year round. And that's fine. But if it is navigable, if you're going to say it's not, it better really, really not be. Also, if it is a most states where it is a stream that is stocked, you can't post it. You can't post it. Um, if it's a stock stream, it's stocked up and downstream, and you're fishing, you and you stay in that water and hit boots, you can walk right through that property. That's how Pennsylvania was. I mean, Texas probably gets shot. <laughs> and uh, Marco gave me a $5 super chat. Thanks for that, Marco. And said, off top of it, I searched CSPC for an episode like this that was a while back. You recommended a blood test for food allergies. Do you still recommend one? Uh, you may have heard Ken Berry recommend one, Dr. Ken Berry, on an expert panel show. You did not hear me recommend one. I have never specifically recommended anything like that. And sometimes I forget stuff, but I can tell you I personally have never put out a specific recommendation for a blood test for food allergies. Now, there are allergy tests that you can have done. Generally, they're not a blood test. Generally, what an allergist does to determine things that you are allergic to is, it's, I think they call it a prick test. And basically, they take this thing that looks like a bandage, and it has a bunch of little needles on it, and each one has a different substance, and they'll, like, put it on your back. And then after a certain amount of days, they'll look and see which ones, like, have a reaction, and they'll say you're allergic to these things. That's That's what I remember people doing. I don't have a lot of allergies, so I don't really have any experience with that. Um, this is Zone 6. Eric says, is there anything better than brush piles to help a rabbit population? <sighs> Rabbits need cover, not necessarily um, brush piles. We used to build a lot of brush piles around. The, like, So we had this huge stripping bank and then a stripping hole, if you, if you know what that is. Like from when they mined coal, though it was mostly backfilled in 
Uh, this was a very old stripping mine. So this is, goes back to like the 1800s when this thing was actually operational, uh, where my grandparents lived. And the bank that was still there would grow in, and then we would clear it off, and we would build um, we would build these brush piles along the, the back side where you couldn't see them of the, uh, of the hill. And this was a big-ass hill. And it, in retrospect, I wouldn't have done that. Nothing bad ever came of it. But I just look at it now and go, bang, we were building wildfire hazards out of the, you know, crazy uh, on that. I think there's not a lot to be done to encourage rabbits other than to make sure that there is decent cover for them. Uh, I would say a lot of small game, that's the case, too. Like, if you have a giant field and you put a squirrel feeder out in the middle of that field, you're probably going to see no squirrels on it. Because what's a squirrel afraid of? right hawks and 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 raptors and stuff like that uh so they don't like to be out in the open i i have never really seen any place that doesn't have a lot of rabbits in it if rabbits are common in the area what i'll say about this and i think this is why people think if i put in brush piles they don't have lots of rabbits rabbits love brush piles it's a place to hide so almost every country bull that's ever hunted knows you go by a brush pile you get on one side and kick it, and your buddy gets on the other side and waits to see if a rabbit comes out of it. You send the dog up in it, whatever, and then the next brush pile, y'all switch so that you're not always going to kick it, and maybe you might be the one to actually shoot a rabbit. So they definitely do attract rabbits, but rabbits are burrowing creatures. They tend to make their way as long as they have cover. So I, I would say, like, one of the things you can do to really encourage rabbits, in my experience, is where you do have lawn plant plant clover, New Zealand white, Dutch white, et cetera. We had our lawn, and it wasn't a very big lawn in Pennsylvania, but our lawn was a mix of grass and clover, and those bunnies loved the clover. They loved the clover. Anyway, with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap stuff up for the day. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Kept it about an hour long. I'm beat. I did two hours with John Willis and Nicole Sauce today. Uh, you can find that on my YouTube channel if you want to watch the video. Uh, I'm sure Nicole will probably put it out as her podcast today, if not today, tomorrow. Uh, so it'll be available that way on Living Free in Tennessee as well. Uh, so I've got about three hours of podcasting in me right now, and I am ready to sign off for the day. I do want to remind you again, next Saturday is when the workshop, the fall workshop, goes on sale. If there's any way you can come, get up Saturday morning, set a reminder, and, and pay attention to the Telegram channel or the website and get signed up and come. This one is going to be off the hook. I started working on the food this weekend. Uh, I cooked by sous vide. I did a sage herb rub, and I did five whole pork loins sous vide this, this weekend uh, so that our chef Michael can bust them off into big, thick chops and sear them off, and it'll be a simple thing. And that's just our lunch the first day. Our first day lunch is going to be pork chops, stuffing, gravy, and salad. So, I mean, we really are up in our game with the food this year. Some of the stuff is stuff that if you've been here, we do every year. Every year I do sausage from Chef Tim Love. Um, he's local to us. It's, you know, we're fortunate to have kind of a celebrity chef that's approachable and local. And he does an elk and beehive cheddar and a rattlesnake and rabbit sausage. Both of them are amazing. I'll have those this year for the Saturday night meal, like always. Uh, we've got the signed copy of the Jim Shockey book. Uh, there's an announcement at the survival podcast.com. Just go to today's show notes or just go to the site and scroll down. I posted it over the weekend. So it's like the next post there. And uh, you can get all the information about the workshop. 
tremendous presenters, three hands-on morning workshops, and then each day is followed by three great presenters plus open time. For those that haven't been before, when you see open time, what that means is you can have a beer and go talk to somebody. You can decide you want to present something. We have whiteboards and we'll have like little groups of people presenting things that they know. Uh, you can attend one of those presentations. You can use the time to take a shower. Uh, it's whatever you want to do with it. But there is a lot of learning that goes on in that time. And I try to put lots of social time in it as well. So nine presentations in three days, three morning workshops hands on in three days, some of the best food you'll ever eat and some of the best people you'll ever spend some time with. Definitely consider coming and hanging out for that. If you can't make it in November to my place, um, and the price is $200 deposit, and it's $400 when you show up, so $600 for three amazing days. Think of it as $200 a day plus the Wednesday social hour and everything. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, but I'm also going to be speaking at Self-Reliance Festival uh, mid-October 14 and 15, I believe, are the dates on that. You can learn more by using the link that's in the video notes or the show notes for this episode. With that, guys, take care. I'll catch you tomorrow with another episode. I don't believe I have an interview tomorrow, even though Wednesday usually is interview day. Uh, so I don't know what we'll be talking about yet, but I'll come up with something between now and then. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Yeah.